0: Right,
1: hello everyone, and welcome to Power Talk. Today's episode is titled "Beginning the Conversation." My name is Nate Woods, and I'm the webmaster for Peterson, and I'm coming to this with a little over 15 years of Caterpillar experience. Uh, right beside me is Greg Lamberg. He's the Utility Business Development Manager for Peterson Power Systems. He's coming to this with over 30 years of experience and over 8,500 megawatts of experience. He's worked for companies like GE, Calpine, Marathon Capital, and PG&E, as well as others. He's been Series 7 and Series 63 certified, and he served on the board of directors of uh, the Power Association of Northern California for over 10 years. And Greg, there's another certification here I'm not too familiar with. behind your name it says CWAS.
0: Do you mind uh, introducing yourself and letting us know uh, what that means? Sure, Nate. Uh, I'm, I'm delighted to be here today. I'm really excited about uh, kicking off this conversation and, and this program. I think this is going to be a really meaningful interaction between uh, uh, industry uh, stakeholders, our customers, and uh, anybody who's interested in this topic. CWAS, however, uh, California Wine Appalachian Specialist. I've spent about 15 years moonlighting in the California wine industry, uh, working at wineries, at high-end wineries, and that's a certification I hold from the San Francisco Wine School. I just love those California Cabernet Sauvignons, and uh, absolutely, the del- I-, I love the, the Oregon Pinots from here in the uh, Willamette Valley. So, uh, happy to talk about wine, but uh, for this program, uh, let's keep the focus on power, Nate. I'm tempted to talk more about Oregon Pinots, but I, I accept So, yeah, talking about
1: power, my experience with power has been pretty minimal. I I plug in something and it works. I pay my bill. And recently I've been seeing big changes, and and not good ones. Uh, Blackouts, sometimes for days, sometimes longer than that. There's been wildfires going on. I've seen uh, stories of of people's electric bills tripling in some cases. And and I, I just don't know what to make of that.
0: Well, and and that's really uh, the heart of where today's conversation is going to go. Um, The electric generation industry is uh, undergoing one of the most, uh, probably the largest change uh, I've ever seen in my lifetime, a fundamental change, a true paradigm shift as the industry tries to decarbonize itself and embrace cleaner technologies. What, what is the shift that's coming? What is the change? Well, yeah, it's a great question. We're going through a tremendously disruptive time right now in the electric generation sector. The fact that we're having this conversation right now is evidence of, of the change that we're going through and how disruptive it actually is. Um, what we're trying to do on a national basis and, and globally is we're trying to decarbonize the electric sector. And as we de- try to decarbonize the electric sector, um, it, because of the uh, effects of climate change, uh, we are changing technologies. And today's technologies that we're uh, embracing to affect to that change actually have very, very different technolo- uh, characteristics from the technologies of yesterday. And, and,
1: and when you say decarbonize, you mean reducing the amount
0: of CO2 that these technologies create? Yeah, it's primarily greenhouse gas emissions. We're, we're trying to reduce the carbon footprint of the electric sector through the uh, adaptation of new technologies and new generation technologies.
1: Okay, so I guess kind of what what's the old technology or, or the current technology, and then what's the,
0: what's the future technology? Where, where are we at and where are we going? Well, in, in broad brush, when we looked at the technologies of yesterday and uh, the way our electric system was set up in the United States, and are many places in the world that have uh, modern electric systems. Uh, they were built on centralized power plants with uh, large transmission networks moving that generation from where the generation was located to population centers, stepping it down to distribution systems and then moving it around within those population centers. And uh, a lot of the technologies that we used in those days, primarily coal, nuclear, natural gas, oil, those types of technologies, um, they were really base-loaded technologies. We turned a power plant on and we turned it off once or twice a year for maintenance. I mean, it just ran 24-7, 87 8760, uh, 8,760 hours in a year. So they ran literally around the clock except for maintenance, and we had a very, very stable system with a lot of inertia on that system. Those plants could ramp up and down as needs required as the uh, electric load on the system changed, but uh, we didn't have to worry about whether or not that plant was gonna be there. Absent an upset condition, uh, we had a very good uh, uh, we had very good reliability on the system, we had a very high confidence level that that plant would be there. And then you say uh, an, an upset, uh, what, is that like a natural disaster or what, what is Oh, that? no, no, I'm not, I'm not being. I'm not being, uh, you know, no, we're not going there yet. Uh, an upset condition would be something tripped, uh, there was a, a switch that went out, something brought the plant offline. So something happened, typically mechanically, uh, that caused a, a, an outage for that facility. But okay. absent an un, what we called an unplanned outage or a forced outage, um, you know those plants run, ran very, very reliably and gave us that power we needed 24 seven. So, so we had
1: uh, big plants, typically far away, uh, pushing electricity to the population centers where, where it got stepped down uh, and, then, and then used. Correct. Okay, and then what,
0: yeah, I'm sorry, yeah, continue. Oh, and one of the challenges in, in, in the electric industry is until recently, until the advent of uh, energy storage on a, on a much wider scale, um, electricity was a very, very unique commodity insofar as its production and use had to be in constant balance. There wasn't many uh, effective ways to economically store energy. So these plants would ramp up and down with energy usage um, to... Uh, to, to match the uh, supply and demand equation in, in real time. And okay. uh, we can now uh, store energy through various storage mechanisms. We'll, we'll talk a little bit about that. But um, it, it adds to the, uh, to the promise of renewable energy, but it also creates some challenges as well.
1: Okay, okay well let's talk a little bit more about the, uh, the renewables coming on or the, the future of this sector.
0: But let's let's do that, and you know, primarily when we talk about renewables, the dominant renewable energy uh, um, sources these days are solar and wind. And, uh, and and certainly hydroelectric, and you know, hydroelectric system is uh, is kind of tapped out. I don't think we're going to see a lot more hydroelectric. In fact, uh, there's a lot of movement right now to remove dams, so uh, hydro uh, capacity is actually falling in the Pacific Northwest and throughout the Western United States. So we're seeing a uh, preponderance of solar and wind uh, being built, and the challenge that both solar and wind present from the uh, balancing equation that we talked about is uh, they are intermittent resources uh, dependent on either the sun shining or the wind blowing to produce that energy. Uh, If we have a a solar farm and we have cloud cover, we're not producing any energy. If it's nighttime, we're certainly not producing any energy. And then uh, the same is true of wind. If uh, we don't have that wind resource, uh, those turbines aren't producing energy. So uh, we don't necessarily have energy around the clock when we need it or uh, matching up the uh, the needs of a consumer with the availability of of solar and wind, so it gets a lot more complex and a lot more challenging uh, as we move forward, and we have a larger and larger amount of renewable intermittent resources on the system. So I'm I'm thinking about
1: solar and. I, I could be wrong here, but I think uh, like the big electricity spikes are on the hottest days. Uh, we just had a horrendous heat wave um, here in, in Oregon that made national news, and so everyone was running their AC around the clock. Is there any sort of synergy behind, on really hot, sunny days, you make the most electricity or is that I guess, I guess that I, I would think that there is, but is there actually?
0: Yeah, on on the sunnier days, you're going to be making the most electricity, but uh, the solar uh, production curve, if you will, kind of follows the sun, and the solar peak is not uh, typically consistent with the actual usage peak. This is a paradigm that's really been changed because of uh, renewable energy over the last five or ten years or so. Typically, everybody assumed that the peak was midday, that was the peak uses for electricity.
1: That's what I would think, yeah.
0: It's not necessarily the case right now. Actually, the peak is about six o'clock in the evening when people get home from work, So. Five, six, seven, eight o'clock at night—those are the real peak hours right now. And unfortunately, that's when the solar's gone. The solar starts tailing off about four, four thirty in the afternoon. Right. So as the solar is ramping down, everybody's coming home from work and ramping up their energy use. Right. Cooking, and, cleaning. Exactly, and, and this is where storage becomes a big piece of this because storage. Um, allows us to actually gain another four hours or so from solar energy. If you look what's happening now, a lot of uh, utility pricing models, as we're starting to see in California, are going to time of use pricing. And they're charging the consumer a lot more for energy between five and nine at night than they do in midday when we have that abundance of solar energy.
1: Hmm. So you said four hours of storage. And um, I kind of want to come back to that. So you're talking about Utility companies changing the price uh, based upon the time of day. Uh, what other what other challenges are coming up uh, because of this?
0: Well, it, it's adding tremendous complexity to to uh, managing the grid. Um, the resources are very very different. Where you know solar and wind don't necessarily give us a lot of inertia on the grid. Where when we had big pieces of metal spinning around, uh, we had a lot of inertia on the grid, which made the grid uh, much more. Capable of uh, of withstanding big shocks, big swings in energy, which are much more difficult for it to do now with with solar and wind, for, especially from a voltage support perspective. So this is where energy storage comes in. But energy storage uh, is is durationally limited. It only has about four hours of capacity, and uh, a lot of our fear is that we're going to see uh, the the results of the shortcomings of energy storage manifest itself in uh, additional brownouts and blackouts. Um, we'll, we'll talk a little more, uh, hopefully soon, the difference between in front of the meter and behind the meter type energy, but uh, as primarily what we're talking about right now are front of the meter solutions, wholesale solutions, large scale solutions, but as um, as the shortcomings of, of intermittency and the durational limitations of energy storage uh, become more and more apparent, uh, we're going to see more and more people taking matters into their own hands, buying backup generation and doing things behind the meter.
1: Uh, that makes a lot of sense. I wanna, there was a YouTube video I watched, uh, I think from uh, practical engineering, I might have that wrong. And he was talking about uh, using water as a battery. So you would, you would essentially pump out all the water from a low lying lake into a lake higher up on the hill. And uh, the theory is, you, know, you do that when the wind is blowing, when the solar is going. And then at nighttime or when you need that electricity, you flow the water back down and use that to spin a turbine. Uh, is that? Have you seen that? Is that? Is that practical? Is that a real thing? Oh,
0: it's very much practical. Uh, California has a couple of large uh, pump storage projects. Uh, Helms is one that comes to mind in PGE and e Service Territory. And uh, what you're doing is you're taking that midday electricity, so from a solar perspective, uh, like like 12 noon, there's not a lot of usage uh, on, on the energy system, but you've got peak solar production around that time. So you use that energy to move water to a higher elevation, increasing its kinetic energy. Mm-hmm. And then during that peak, those peak hours when you need it, you drop that water, let it flow through turbines to produce uh, energy uh, when you no longer have the sun. So it's a shift of that solar energy uh, through, uh, through a pumped hydro project. Typically, those projects have anywhere between like 8 to 12 hours of durational capacity. And uh, we are seeing some of those uh, being, uh, being developed right now. There's a very large project being developed in California by, uh, by next era that we're following and that we're uh, hoping uh, comes to bear. What, what happens though, is that these projects will again rely on the distribution I'm sorry on the, on the transmission system. They'll be built where there isn't a lot of load and we'll have to move that energy through transmission back to, back to distribution. But um, there's certainly a, a role for pump storage um, as, uh, as we move forward and uh, have to deal with the challenges presented by intermittency and by load shifting.
1: Okay, so, so the, the pump storage, uh, is sort of like a tool in the in the toolbox. I guess what other what other tools are out there for folks? You mentioned people were buying their own uh, generators for um, for their for their own private use. Um, what 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 solutions do you see people reaching
0: for? This 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 is a great topic that you that you've brought up here, and I'm going to expand it a little bit. Uh, when, when we talked earlier about you know some of the old paradigms for electric generation. Um, if we built a coal plant, that was it. We had a coal plant. Right. Or if we built a nuclear plant, that was it. We had a nuclear plant. And that took care of everything. Right. Um, in the new world of renewables, it's an all-of-the-above approach. Um, it's going to take a portfolio of solutions. We're going to need wind paired with storage. We're going to need solar paired with storage. We're going to need other technologies uh, that, can give us, uh, that can give us the durational characteristics we need. And the fact of the matter is we're gonna need natural gas for a long time uh, on the system. There's been a lot of modeling done. In fact, there was a study done in California that showed we're gonna need about 35 gigawatts on the, on the system in California to keep the lights on. In fact, if uh, our listeners are so inclined, if you look at the California Independent System Operator website, and you track the energy uses for today, what you'll see is in the evening hours around five o'clock when all of that solar is falling off and going by the wayside, uh, much of that ramp is being uh, made up by natural gas right now. So while societally there is a huge movement to do away with natural gas as soon as possible, the fact of the matter is we're gonna need gas for the next two to three decades at least.
1: And you said, you said 35 gigawatts, and I'm trying to wrap my mind around that because I'm familiar With the Cat XQ2000s, which are just they're 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 semi-trailer-sized, gigantic generators, Uh, and each one produces um, is that two megawatts? About two megawatts. That's correct. So 35 gigawatts is 15, 16,000 times 16,000 XQ2000s.
0: Yeah, let's you know what let's let us let us take a break here and, and and differentiate for our listeners in front of the meter versus behind the meter. Great. And a lot of what we've been talking about so far is in front of the meter. These are these are large wholesale energy solutions used by utilities and load serving energies to meet their load. So the meter like the, the electric
1: meter stuck on the side of the building.
0: Exactly, exactly. And that power coming into that meter. Uh, into that building can be coming from miles and miles away from a pumped hydro facility in Los Angeles or from a hydro facility along the Columbia River or from a coal plant in New Mexico. Uh, These electrons can travel a significant distance. But once we get inside that building, uh, we can provide generation solutions on the other side of that meter, on the retail side of that meter, to address um, intermittency, to address um, reliability, uh, for emergency situations. For example, uh, it's a very, very bad day of a hospital loses its, its generation, loses its electricity. So almost every hospital that you'll see, it's mandated that they have a source of backup generation uh, behind the meter to add as insurance uh, to uh, a loss of the grid as a whole or that front of the meter capacity. And what we're seeing in the market right now is As things become more intermittent, as costs go up because of the uh, infrastructure that's being placed and all of the renewables that are being uh, developed right now, it's increasing our costs. As these costs go up and as intermittency increases and the grid becomes a little less reliable as we're going through this monumental change, there's a lot of focus behind the meter for users of critical energy to be able to uh, make sure that their lights stay on. Uh, We're seeing this, especially in areas like California, where we've had the advent in the last three or four years of the public safety power shutoff. People have gone without power for four or five days at a clip, uh, which is just unacceptable. Uh, for much of society, for the way people work right now and for the way people live, or especially if people have medical conditions and they're on a piece of equipment or have a piece of equipment that's dependent upon electricity. If they have medications, that's dependent upon refrigeration. Food's dependent upon refrigeration. So as uh, all of these things are coming to bear, well, and people the, are spending a lot of time focused on behind-the-meter solutions.
1: And you're talking about the the safety shutoffs. My understanding is that's um, to prevent... Uh, Wildfires, like the, the terrible one that California suffered,
0: correct. So, correct. so
1: you, you, something I, I don't quite understand is your you said that the the intermittency is going down.
0: Um, intermittency as, is going up
1: as as we onboard these new technologies. So, how does how does introducing solar or introducing another source of power? Uh, how does that bring down the the reliability of the grid if you're just adding a new source to it
0: it's a great question and let let me answer your question with an example with an example that's gotten a lot of uh press over the last few months uh let's look at the diablo canyon nuclear facility uh, in san luis obispo california i'm surprised they have a nuclear facility in california it's the last one left in california and uh, it is scheduled to be shut down in 2024 2025 the Diablo Canyon Nuclear Facility produces about 2,200 megawatts of, of power, uh, literally around the clock. It produces about 10% of the energy that's consumed in California.
1: So, OK, I guess I'm not understanding how that makes sense. If if we're already having shutoffs, if we're already having issues with uh, reliability and, and quality of the power, um, Why are we going to take something offline before we already have generation capability to to
0: replace it? Uh, Well, that's a great question, and the fact of the matter is, um, we don't have the capacity to replace it right now. Uh, The California Public Utilities Commission, uh, through many many deliberations, uh, decided that Diablo Canyon would be replaced with 11.5 gigawatts of uh, solar wind and energy storage but again these are intermittent resources that they're going to try to use to replace a, a base load resource and it's going to be very very challenging I think people's intentions are good but I think personally I think the regulation is about 15 years ahead of the technology we don't have the technologies currently to, and, and people will argue with me about this, but my personal belief, and I think Peterson's belief, is that the technologies aren't quite there yet um, to, uh, to replace these baseload facilities. And we're seeing that through our customers. Uh, in the Bay Area alone, uh, the number of non-residential diesel generators that are registered through the Bay Area Air Quality Management District is up by over 30% in the last four years. What does that tell you? It tells you that people are taking matters into their own hands and doing what they need to do behind their meter to keep their lights on. Uh, We don't hear Peterson Power Systems. We don't do the smaller residential backup generation. Right. But companies like Generac do. And if you look at Generac over the last couple of years, their stock's up almost 700%.
1: I understand there's a a wait list if uh, if you want to get a, a residential backup installed.
0: Yeah, and, you know, there's a um, there's an old adage in the energy business. I've been around the energy business for a lot longer than I like to admit, but I don't feel as old as I seem to be getting. But uh, the old adage is if Jack and Jill are sitting at the dinner table talking about electricity and their electricity bill, that the utility industry is failing Oof. and uh, because the belief is electricity should be cheap, it should be clean, it should be plentiful, it should be reliable, we should throw that switch and not even think about it. It should be safe. Yeah, well, safety safety goes without say, and you know the, the state, all the safety precautions are there. Solar power is safe, you know. Wind wind power is safe. There's there's not really the safety concerns. Um, our, 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 our fire issues is due to the transmission system and uh, and you know a lot of the uh, the drought that we're experiencing. So there's different issues there. But back 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 to the point: when people are thinking about electricity and life without electricity, they're inclined to do something about it. And, and we're certainly seeing that uh, here at Peterson Power working with our customers to provide them with solutions that will give them the ride through they need during upset events. So you're, you're talking about folks installing their own diesel generators and,
1: and the, the huge amount of increase in that. Um, and I understand that's, that's the existing technology, that's the stuff that tried and true for decades. What, uh, what new technologies are coming on board that folks can use behind the meter?
0: Great question, and uh, just, to, just to circle back and finish on diesel, um, a lot of talk about energy storage these days, and uh, many of us in the industry believe that the best storage you can have is diesel fuel in a tank or gas in a pipe, uh, provides you with the best storage, and uh, many critical users of energy still believe that. Diesel generation is still the gold standard of, uh, of backup generation because it's very portable, and we don't rely on natural gas pipelines or gas infrastructure to utilize diesel. We can put tanks anywhere and we can size uh, duration based upon the size of that tank or the availability of other deliveries. On the diesel side, uh, a lot of exciting things are, happen- are happening. One, uh, we're utilizing a lot of tier four technology or okay. clean diesel as we say. So uh, the diesel engine of today Utilizing Tier 4 technology is much, much cleaner, orders of magnitude cleaner than just the diesel gen sets we were using 10 years ago. Yes, yes it is. And then when we combine that with uh, the advances in fuel technology, um, there are 100% renewable fuels out there right now uh, called renewable diesel or HVO, hydro-treated vegetable oil. Um, These are 100% renewable fuels that have superior greenhouse gas footprint and superior emissions profiles to, uh, to uh, old fossil diesel.
1: Now, can an existing uh, diesel generator be, be upgraded to take these new fuels?
0: Yes, they can. Um, interestingly enough, uh, between um, fossil diesel, the diesel like 15 years ago, biodiesel and renewable diesel. Uh, there's been a great transition and when people hear renewable diesel, they think about fossil, uh, they think about biodiesel. That, that's what I thought you were talking biodiesel about. Biodiesel was a blend many years ago where people were taking uh, grease, tra- grease trappings, restaurant uh, waste, those types of things, and mixing them with, uh, with fossil diesel. So you had a lot of engine manufacturers would take no more than a B20 blend, which means 20% renewable, 80% fossil diesel. The new renewable Diesels are a very uh, complex refined product um, that is truly 100% renewable and is a drop in replacement to, uh, to, uh, to, to to diesel fuel biodiesel uh, really attacked anything rubber in the engine they gave they gave a lot of problems to gaskets to all, they, there was gunking problems those types of issues where with renewable diesel it's essentially a drop in replacement to uh, to fossil diesel And uh, Peterson Power Systems, we're very, very proud of our record in the use of hydro-treated vegetable oil. We are one of the Mm -hmm. pioneers in the usage of hydro-treated vegetable oil, or HVO, for the PSPS um, uh, use case for Pacific Gas and Electric Company. We're one of the largest suppliers of, of rental generation and emergency power. Uh, for the utilities through the CAT uh, dealer network, we have the largest fleet of anyone. And in supplying the, that power to PGD over the last three summers, we have maximized the use of renewable diesel, really improving the environmental footprint and the sustainability um, of that installation. So we've done tremendous work there. In fact, the California Public Utilities Commission is now recognizing the benefits of hydro treated vegetable oil and uh, almost, not, not quite, but just short of mandating uh, the maximization of the use of HVO in that use case to the extent possible
1: that, that almost sounds like a silver bullet if it's a, if it's a drop-in replacement uh, it's cleaner it scales up well I, I guess what's the catch there is it is it availability of the fuel or, or is this or is there no catch at all and just everyone's going to be using it in there,
0: there's a couple of catches um, availability of fuel is is growing and it's growing rapidly. In fact, uh, two major refineries in the Bay Area have announced that they are converting their production to, uh, to renewable diesel. Um, the Phillips 66 uh, refinery in, in uh, Rodeo, California. If you're listening from Southern California, we can say Rodeo, but in Northern California and up here in uh, Hillsboro, Oregon, we say Rodeo. And then also uh, there is a large uh, refinery in Concord, the uh, Marathon Refinery. They are, uh, they're converting as well. And when you look at the environmental impacts of the conversion of these refineries, um, not only are they creating hundreds of union jobs and also um, preserving hundreds and hundreds of, of living wage jobs, they are cutting their carbon uh, footprint by almost 70%. On the production side, and eliminating billions of gallons of use of water every year in the production of these fuels, so there's a real good story to be told there, um, and also you know a, a better carbon footprint for these fuels and a better uh, a better emissions profile. But you can't make everybody happy all the time. And the fact of the matter is uh, that yes, there still is a greenhouse gas footprint to the to renewable diesel, and there still is an emissions profile that is less than zero where uh, when we talk about wind and solar and energy storage, essentially there's almost no greenhouse gas emissions associated with these technologies. So as we try to accelerate the road towards decarbonization, um, I don't think uh, renewable diesel is the answer, but it's part of the solution. We talked about a portfolio of solutions and an all the above approach. It certainly has a place. And uh, it allows uh, environmentally conscious, sustainability conscious customers to utilize a fuel that has a much better environmental profile than just uh, you know, standard diesel oil. So, yeah, so how,
1: how low is the target if, if something like this, this next generation of diesel fuel um, isn't good enough? I guess how, how low is that decarbonization target?
0: Well, the decarbonization target is uh, they, ultimately that we're looking at uh, the target of a net zero for the electric sector. Is and, that possible? Uh, is it possible? I believe it's possible. I don't believe it's possible with today's solutions. Uh, we more, more technology is going to have to uh, come to bear, and we're seeing that already. though. I mean, we're seeing tremendous strides um, as we as we go through this transition. We, we said it was extremely disruptive. And uh, a lot of benefit comes from disruptive times, and we're seeing that. Uh, to your point, um, we talked a little bit about you know, diesel reciprocating engines. On the natural gas side, we're seeing more and more uses for renewable natural gas, where we're taking biogases from digesters, uh, from wastewater treatment plants, and we're maximizing the use of those gases. Um, some of those gases, actually, in their, in their, uh, if you look at their life cycle production, from producing the gas to utilizing the gas, are actually carbon negative, because methane from cattle would be going up into the atmosphere. To the extent we can utilize that gas and um, use it for power generation in a system that has emissions controls on it, we're actually producing a carbon negative solution as opposed to a carbon neutral solution, but. There's only so much of that gas possible. I think if we scooped up every bit of biogas uh, possible in the, uh, in the Western United States, it would only serve us about 8% of, of the need. But again, it's a portfolio approach. It's about using ev- all the tools um, at our disposal to, uh, to uh, you know, change the, uh, the paradigm with regards to energy production and, and carbon production. We look past natural gas technologies. Um, hydrogen is very, very exciting, and hydrogen pr- uh, pr- pr- presents a very uh, exciting future and a huge opportunity for us. Um, we talked about load shifting a little bit just before with solar, and we can use lithium-ion batteries to load shift for about four hours. Okay, hydrogen gives us the opportunity to use excess sunshine, excess wind to produce green hydrogen, to produce hydrogen that's produced with renewable energy, to bottle it up, store it how you will, and to use it uh, in the winter as opposed to the summer. This is called seasonal shifting Hmm. as opposed to just load shifting. So hydrogen presents a tremendous opportunity to uh, decarbonize the energy sector uh, through the production of green hydrogen and the utilization of that hydrogen, either in fuel cells or in, in reciprocating engines. And this is an area that's very, very exciting uh, for all of us in the Caterpillar family, uh, either with Caterpillar corporate or in the dealer network, is uh, Caterpillar's leadership uh, in the utilization of hydrogen. Our reciprocating engine fleet right now can uh, utilize anywhere between 20 25% hydrogen gas blends. With, uh, in the fleet right now. In the fleet right now. With uh, We have new units coming out the end of this year, beginning of next. That are going to be capable of running 100 percent hydrogen, and that's going to be a game changer. A um, lot of a uh, lot of research going into hydrogen with regards to production, uh, transportation, storage. It's expensive right now, but it will get cheaper. And uh, the hydrogen economy is attracting a tremendous amount of investment and excitement as a tool for uh, for utilize, for decarbonizing the energy sector.
1: So the you, you got to make the hydrogen, and um. Gears, can, can you do that at a small scale as well as a big scale? Could you have a remote facility uh, that makes its own hydrogen, or is this the kind of stuff that has to come from a large processing facility and then, and then distributes it?
0: The answer is all the above, yes. You can make hydrogen at, at, at scale, and it, it will be cheaper. A lot of that hydrogen being produced these days is what's called blue hydrogen. Hmm. Uh, it's actually formulated from natural gas. But uh, we are seeing a, a lot of uh, ingenuity uh, coming along in uh, electrolyzers, in smaller scale electrolyzers to be able to produce hydrogen right on site from renewable energy on site, from you know, solar and, and and storage and microgrids on site, produce that hydrogen on site and then use it later on site. So uh, a lot is happening in, in the world of hydrogen right now. And I think we're just getting started. It's gonna be very, very exciting to uh, To see to see where hydrogen goes and where it takes us, and, and what's the what's the put pr- the carbon footprint of hydrogen look like? Well, there is no carbon. Really, that's that's the beauty of it. So, if you look at a hydrogen molecule, that's we're we're going to get to chemistry now, and uh, <laughs> you to we're we're going way back here. But if you look at a methane molecule, which is natural gas, okay, it's CH four. It's four hydrogen molecules attached to a molecule of carbon. And when we burn it, that carbon is stripped off and goes into the atmosphere. But when we're looking at hydrogen, it's H2. Okay, so when hydrogen combusts, it combines with oxygen, so your byproduct is water. There's there's no carbon involved, and therein lies the promise of hydrogen. And hydrogen, I think, is going to be a big piece of this because you know one of the other challenges that we haven't even touched on, and I'm sure we're going to touch on this in future episodes, is the electrification of the transportation sector.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: the the EV vehicle growth is just crazy right now with with what's happening with uh, with electric vehicles uh, throughout the country and how many of them are being sold this year versus last. Well, that transition from the internal combustion engine to EVs. Um, is going to create a tremendous uh, strain on our energy system, uh, creating the need for more and more power. So, you know, we're, we're we're almost you know we're running as fast as we can towards the future, but the future kind of running away from us as well as we try to uh, as we try to uh, electrify everything. But where hydrogen is going to come into this equation is we look at long-term trucking and shipping and stuff like that. Uh, I don't think we're going to get the uh, the amount of uh, duration or the the mileage that we need out of batteries uh, to do transcontinental trucking, shipping those types of things. I think that will be hydrogen, either in uh, in reciprocating engines or in fuel cells.
1: Okay, and I'm kind of yeah. And the electric vehicles piece. I understand even uh, Peterson Trucks is trying to. Uh, position themselves to support customers in that environment. And the the additional drain you mentioned on the grid, How can, can you estimate how much more electricity would be needed if, if everyone swapped to an electric vehicle tonight?
0: Hard to do. Very, very hard to do. Uh, there are some rules of thumb out there with regards to how many kilowatts an electric vehicle consumes, but it's really a matter of controlling consumer behavior And where this gets fascinating looking into the future is not only is the electric vehicle a consumer of energy, but it's almost a a synthetic producer of energy. Because with a smart grid, uh, the vehicle can take energy in the middle of the night when the wind's blowing and we're all sleeping. You've got those high winds going through the Columbia Gorge or going through the uh, San Gregorio Mountains in California. We could be charging those electric vehicles and then in the morning, when we wake up and go to work, we can park that electric vehicle into, uh, into a parking garage and power that building with the electric vehicle for the morning rush hour when everybody's coming to work, firing up their computers and whatnot. And then midday, when we have all that excess solar again, we can be charging those vehicles again so that we can get ourselves home and then plug those vehicles in as a source to get us through the evening peak. That's incredible. And you, you see that being realistic in, uh, in like 15 years? I, I think it's going to be closer than that. I think we're starting to see pilots right now. Uh, we're starting to see some very, uh, very uh, forward thinking. And we're seeing a lot of ingenuity in the space where uh, actually companies are bidding in virtual power plants right now where they're aggregating a bunch of load behind the meter, residential load, and actually bidding that in. To utility solicitations to uh, almost act like in front of the meter load, so it is truly a a, a new world in energy. And uh, but as, as we started by by talking about, it's it's a very very disruptive time. Uh, we're a little far forward on our skis right now with regards to the future that we want and what we the the technologies and the state of the art of these technologies to get us where we're going. And uh, there's going to be a lot of pain felt along the way as uh, some of the shortcomings of these technologies are felt by, uh, by consumers and the grid as a whole. And uh, that's where you know, a lot of the solutions that we're providing at Peterson Power Systems behind the meter, be it uh, renewable fuels like HVO in a, in, a, in a compression ignition or what we call a diesel engine, uh, whether it's renewable natural gas that we're providing in an internal combustion engine or a spark ignition engine, whether it's an energy storage solution with battery energy storage, um, all of these things are gonna have a, a tremendous role in securitizing uh, our energy supplies as we go through this transition, which is probably we're looking at another you know 10 to 20 years um, before we get through this transition.
1: You know, one of those solutions you mentioned Uh, was the the storage and earlier on you had said that we can store electricity for four hours and I'm aware there's um, like spinning flywheels in a vacuum is a way to store uh, lead-acid batteries um, metal air batteries what what are the the storage systems you're familiar with that work well and why is there a four hour cap
0: Great question. And first of all, there there are a number of different storage technologies, and the appropriate storage technology is really based on the use case. Uh, for shorter durations, flywheels are, are really cool. For shorter durations like UPS, uh, lead-acid batteries uh, work very, very well and are relatively inexpensive. Um, the state of the art right now with regards to durational energy storage seems to be lithium-ion. Okay. Uh, that's what the energy uh, industry has embraced. We're just, seeing, just like
1: what's in my phone or in my laptop.
0: Exactly. And we're seeing a tremendous amount of lithium-ion deployments uh, throughout uh, states that are leading the charge towards decarbonization. California, New York, Massachusetts um, are, are kind of leading the way with the deployment of energy storage. And the fact of the matter is there's just there's a durational limit of about four hours on a lithium-ion battery right now. It discharges over a four-hour period. So if we want eight hours, we need two batteries.
1: Ah, uh, okay, okay. So, so the, the four hours isn't how long it can store it, that's how long it can discharge. Correct. Now, I've seen, again, YouTube videos uh, where people were, were using these gigantic e-cigarettes uh, with a lithium-ion battery, and the the thing explodes in their hand. Uh, and I'm imagining, you know, when, when we're talking about gigawatts and lithium-ion, uh, well, what's the safety concern there? Because that seems that seems like a tremendous amount of of power to have stored in, in a physical cell. So what? Yeah. You know, so what what solutions have people put into place to to make sure?
0: everyone's safe with these technologies? That's a great question. And uh, my my first comment to your question and and your comments is, um, I think we should look at what you're watching on YouTube. (laughs) We don't want you having nightmares in the evening about an e-cigarette blowing up in your face or something like that. Um, The the battery energy storage space is very, very fluid. Uh, Pun intended and not intended. We do have some flow batteries that give us longer durations and there's a lot of... uh, Research and development going on in those areas. But with regards to uh, you know stationary four hour batteries, um, the chemistries have been changing. Okay. Okay. And we've gone from, uh, uh, over the past few years, we've gone from a chemistry that was uh, NMC, uh, nickel, magnesium, cobalt, to LFP, uh, uh, more of a, a, an iron based. Okay. Uh, there's pros and cons of each. Uh, the newer chemistries being used. Are less prone to thermal runaway. Uh, that's the problem you have when, when lithium kind of gets hot. We've all ha- we've all felt our phone get really hot or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, lithium uh, ion batteries do have a tendency uh, or a risk of experiencing thermal runaway. And there have been some instances around the world where they have caught fire. And uh, we've learned a lot from this as an industry. Uh, a lot of fire departments have gotten involved and uh, rewritten standards. Um, when the industry started, uh, you know, 10 years ago, a lot of the battery enclosures were actually designed for uh, for human occupation. That's not the case anymore. Um, everything is is uh, accessible from the outside of these containers, and uh, the fire protection systems have improved greatly. A lot of these containers are now sealed, and they've got stub ups where you can put a uh, you know you can basically flood the container if there is a if there is a fire. So. Um, from the fire risk perspective, um, much, much safer with regards to potential effects to you know, humans right. and, and firefighters and those types of things, but it still is a risk. And the chemistries are changing, and there's a lot going on right now with, uh, m- believe it or not, much less um, sophisticated chemistries with, 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 with iron chemistries and stuff like that that are going to, they won't be as dense, they'll create more, they'll, they'll need more real estate for the same amount of, of energy, but you may be able to get longer durations. And uh, there's a couple of uh, battery companies that we're following very closely that are working with uh, simpler chemistries um, that will, and you've probably seen some of these in the news, I don't wanna mention any of them here, but um, we're gonna see a lot, of, uh, a lot of innovation, a lot of growth in, in the battery sector. But uh, today's batteries are much safer uh, than they were just four or five years ago. Chemistries are changing. Uh, the uh, fire protection systems are changing. The uh, detection systems are changing. So uh, we're, we're, we're learning at an industri- as an industry. We're running at 100 miles an hour right now. We're going to make yeah. some mistakes. But uh, as an industry, we're learning, and uh, these technologies are getting better and better, uh, safer and safer, and uh, coming down in, in cost as well.
1: Okay, so let's. Uh, I'm trying to really kind of wrap my head around everything that you've talked about. So, if if I were say running a dairy operation, uh, and and so the milk always has to be cold. If if the power goes out, uh, that's my whole stock is gone, and I'm I'm dealing in this reality. What should be top of mind for me if if I just want to know. Like, what's the next step I should take, and maybe where do I go? Oh, What, what would you tell uh, such a
0: person? Well, every use case is unique. And what we're finding now, and we're, we're talking to a number of dairies through, throughout our service territory, and a lot of them have installed solar, okay. which is great. And they either are installing batteries with that solar, or they have some solar right now, and they want to store energy storage, battery storage. And that's fantastic. We're certainly encouraging that. And then, as the last piece of that, um, they're looking for a, uh, a gen set uh, to provide the durational ba- uh, backup or, or, the, or the insurance. The, uh, all of the above, just it, like you've been it's saying. It's all the above. And these are called microgrids. And I hope we're going to do a, well, I, I imagine uh, as we continue this series of discussions uh, behind the meter. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about some microgrids and maybe we can even bring some experts in here, but microgrids can uh, disconnect from the utility, manage all of that load, and do it for a durational period uh, by optimizing the, uh, the contributions from solar, from storage, and from uh, more conventional technologies like reciprocating engines. In fact, uh, Caterpillar um, has done a tremendous amount of uh, research, development, and deployment in the microgrid space. Uh, with our microgrid proving grounds out in uh, out in the um, Tucson area of Arizona we have a proving ground out there where actually our facility is about eight miles away from the utility inner ties we didn't have a choice hmm. and we built a microgrid and we run solar we run storage and we run uh, backup generators out there and through our microgrid controllers we optimize the contributions of each of those resources at any given moment in the day
1: well, what does that mean optimize the contributions
0: well obviously you want to be able to use all the solar you can whenever you can right um if you don't need the battery you want to make sure that battery's charging when you can charge it um you want to discharge your battery and charge your battery in such a way where you're maintaining the health of that battery okay batteries aren't forever and every every cycle you go through takes a little bit of life away from it so you want to manage the discharge and the state of charge of that battery and then in areas where um, you're going to be short, you want to kind of load follow uh, those, those, those peaks and valleys uh, with a more conventional resource like a reciprocating engine.
1: OK, so, so the optimization is sort of um, a technological management way to even further reduce the, the carbon from the, from the installation.
0: Absolutely. You want, you want to use your carbon-free resources first, Um, You want to maximize the contributions of renewable energy, but at the same time, you never want to find yourself short. So it it all has to be managed. And um, what you're also trying to do is you're trying to minimize the usage of your carbon-emitting resources, but uh, at at the same time acknowledging uh, the role that they have to play and uh, using them when you need to, but uh, not any more often than you have to.
1: And how how big would you have to be for... Even kind of consider a microgrid. Like how 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 micro does the microgrid grid get?
0: Oh, I I think we're starting to see microgrids at the residential level. Wow. You know, so uh, it really um, it really depends. And you know what we're finding is that with the technologies available in microgrids right now, we're seeing utilities where if you have a couple of houses at the end of a distribution line. Rather than building that last mile or two of distribution line, it can actually be cheaper to install a microgrid to provide the energy for those four or five homes at the end of that line. So this is, again, part of the energy transition that we're seeing. We're seeing the transition uh, on the wholesale side with regards to the resources that are uh, out in the desert, these huge solar fields out in the desert. That are coming in through transmission. We're seeing a tremendous amount of uh, change at the distribution level uh, with regards to the adaptation of microgrids, um, different uh, load load shedding schemes, um, different types of demand response schemes, uh, controlling consumer behavior through time-of-use pricing, and then we're seeing uh, more and more efficient uses of energy through. You know, things like LED lighting and appliance standards. It's all on the table right now. There's massive change everywhere you look in this sector, and it's probably one of the most exciting times we've ever seen in the energy sector.
1: Wow. I, I'm feeling actually optimistic after hearing all that. Uh, I, think, I think we've covered a lot of ground. Is there anything uh, else you want to touch on on this one, or, or do you want to save it for
0: later? Well, I, I want to uh, thank anybody who's listening into to this. And what we're trying to do here at Peterson is we're trying to have a conversation uh, with the industry and with our customers and with users of energy about what's happening and uh, how you can safeguard. Well, two things, how you can take advantage of some of these newer technologies to increase your reliability and lower your bills and also how you can safeguard yourself um, against uh, some of the potential shortcomings of these uh, newer technologies and, and protect protect yourself behind the meters. So we're looking to have a conversation. We want to know what's on your mind. If there's a topic you'd like us to talk about, let us know. And uh, Nathan will give you that information shortly. Let us know and uh, we'll, we'll, we'll bring experts in here. We'll have a conversation. And uh, we're looking for a very, very interactive dialogue that we're just embarking on. And I think together, uh, we're going to have a lot of fun with this. So we thank you for your time. And Nathan, how, how, how do they get a hold of us? Absolutely. Well, uh, yeah, a
1: big thank you to anyone who's made it this far into the recording. You're, you're a champion. Uh, we would love to hear your ideas, your corrections, anything you want covered. Questions. Questions. Absolutely questions. The email address we have set up is podcast at petersonpower.com. Uh, those questions will go directly to Greg and myself. Uh, This is something that we hope will keep going. Uh, Our intention is to cover a lot of topics about the energy sector in, in an honest and approachable way. And thank you for listening. Thank you.